Why don't you go ahead and grab your copy of Scripture, um, whether it's on your uh, phone or in the uh, copy of the Bible you brought. If you don't have either, there should be in front of you, um, in the seat, uh, below, below the seat, there a black hardback copy. Um, why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. As Charles said, we're going to continue on. We're in the fourth week of a, of a five-week series called Rooted in the Gospel, where we're looking at uh, how Paul addressed the Corinthian believers and what it means for us to be a people, to, to learn how Paul addressed these believers, um, to stake their identity, to root their mission, um, who they were, how this kills sin in their lives, all of this being rooted and centered in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so we're going to continue on today um, by looking at verses 26, starting in chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. Um, so go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26, we'll read through to chapter 2, verse 5. And what you're going to see here is Paul is addressing his fellow brothers, fellow sisters in Christ, and he's going to give two illustrations emphasizing the point that he made last week. So these are follow-up thoughts further illustrating what we preached and what we taught and what we learned on last week. So let's turn our attention to these words penned by our brother under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Starting chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, you and you alone are the object of our boasting. You alone have put us in Christ Jesus. Now may the power of the Holy Spirit rule and reign in our hearts this morning. Come, God, inhabit the preaching of your word so that all present would see a glorious demonstration of the Spirit's power. Encourage our hearts this morning. Enable us to see the hope that is found in the text this morning. True gospel change comes through the power of the Spirit applied to sinful hearts. So come, Lord God, and have your way with your people. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So here we are. We're we're in the fourth week of a five-week series rooted in the gospel. 
We've been studying this theme now for, for a couple weeks, and we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and now we're creeping into chapter 2. Next week, we'll wrap out the series by turning our attention to chapter 2, verse 6 through 16. But in these first two chapters, Paul is in the early stages of, of addressing some deep-seated issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. It was true that the Corinthians had received the preached message of the cross from Paul, but over the course of time, they had began to drift from that center. The gospel had its impact upon their hearts in salvation, but the forward march of the gospel progress, sanctification, growing in Christ, being conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ in all aspects, in all areas, in all ways of their life, had become stagnant. The actions of their lives were not reflecting the truth of the gospel that had been applied to their heart. If you remember in first week in verses 1 through 9, we saw that they had lost sight of their identity, who they were in Christ, rooted in God's call of salvation. We also saw from those same verses, verses 1 through 9, that they had lost sight of their mission, what they were to be about, rooted in God's call to do good works, which is itself rooted in their gospel identity. In that following week, in verses 9 through 17, we saw that they had lost sight of healthy Christian fellowship, a sign that because they have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they were in turn to reflect and image that fellowship with believers, Because they had a vertical relationship, they were in vertical union with Jesus, they should have been in horizontal unity with their fellow believers. But they weren't marked by this fellowship. They were marked by division, quarreling. Then last week in verses 17 through 25, we saw that they had even lost sight of the central message of the gospel. The message of the cross was removed from the center and they elevated human wisdom into its place. In short, in all of these areas, in all of these ways, Paul is seeking to address and looking to them, and he's calling them out and trying to get them to see that the center should be Jesus Christ and him crucified in everything they think, say, and do, but they had somehow, in some way, some shape, some form, have removed Jesus from the center, were replacing other things in the center, and when they did that, they began to become disconnected from the gospel, and they were preaching a false gospel with their actions, even though they could claim a true gospel that they had heard preached from Paul. So this week, as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians verses 26 there in chapter 1 through 2, 5, we will see that Paul is going to continue his train of thought from the verses we looked at last week. Last week, we saw that the gospel, the good news of the cross, stood in complete contradiction to human wisdom as a means of salvation. And this week, we will see that identity and preaching are also contradictory to human wisdom. Identity and preaching rooted in the gospel are contradictory to human wisdom. Paul is going to show us that the Corinthian call to salvation... And his preaching illustrate that human wisdom can never be the center of the gospel. So our text actually splits right in half. Verses 26 through 31 are going to be his first illustration to back up what he said last week. The gospel 
is a contradiction in human wisdom. So he's going to say, here, let me, let me illustrate my point. First look to your calling, brothers. That's what he's going to do in verse 26 through 31. He's going to show them the Corinthians' gospel identity was not rooted in human wisdom. That's going to be our point to illustrate what he said last week. And secondly, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, Paul's preaching was not rooted in human wisdom. That's going to be his second point of illustration to show that what we saw and what we looked at last week was also true. Jesus Christ and him crucified has to be the center. Paul illustrated that even in his preaching. So identity and preaching are contradictory to human wisdom. The Corinthians' gospel identity was not rooted in human wisdom, 26 through 31. And Paul's preaching was not rooted in human wisdom, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So turn your copy of Scripture there. Look at 26 through 31 for Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Corinthians' gospel identity was not rooted in human wisdom. So last week, when we looked at verses 17 through 25... Paul delivered to the Corinthians a foundational teaching of the Christian message. It was this. The message of the cross stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. In light of everything that Paul has said, he turns his attention to the calling of the Corinthians as a way to illustrate this point. Human wisdom had become a very big deal for them. They were in Greece an area known for its philosophical thinkers and marked by its love for human wisdom. And after Paul left for Corinth, the Corinthian presentation of the cross began to take the shape of human wisdom. The Corinthians had drifted to the place where the cross no longer held standalone power for them. It was something to which one needed to add human wisdom and thereby make it superior. That was the thinking that had be, be, was being adopted by the Corinthian believers. And then to make matters worse, they began to see themselves in light of human wisdom. So it was no longer just, hey, we need to make the gospel superior by adding human wisdom, but it also become, hey, look how wise we are. Of course God wants us on his team because we are marked by wisdom, power, and people of high rank. This attitude was self-flattery. They held an inordinately high opinion of themselves, and in a sense, you can hear them congratulating one another over their perceived greatness, a greatness that merited salvation from God. But the simple truth is that they were thinking wrongly, and Paul is going to have them first consider their call of salvation in order to correct this wrong way of thinking. That's what he does in verse 26. After saying the gospel, the center of the gospel, must be Jesus Christ and him crucified, it can't be human wisdom. And brothers, I see even amongst you this idea that you are even thinking that you are wise according to worldly standards. Therefore, that's why God called you to be on team Jesus. No, don't think that way. Think this way. Consider your calling. 
Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. See, the Corinthians had adopted the faulty lens of human wisdom. And when they looked at themselves through this false lens, they were drawing wrong conclusions. They had adopted worldly standards and defined their identity by these worldly standards. See, the world loves human wisdom, power, and people of high rank. We are a people of a celebrity culture. We like the guy who's at the top. We like the people who are very important. But these categories can't be the standard by which we, as gospel people, view ourselves. For the Christian whose identity is rooted in the gospel, using the world as your standard, will always warp how you see yourself. Worldly standards skew your true gospel reflection. So imagine a mirror before you. A good mirror with no flaws that reflect back to you the truth of who you are. So when you get up in the morning, a good mirror would reflect back to me, yes, I have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. A good mirror would reflect back, yes, that's true. A good mirror would reflect back, I've got sort of darker brown hair. I'm tall, I'm wearing a gray sweater, I have on a a black tie. A good mirror would rightly reflect back reality. The Corinthians should have been looking into the mirror of the good news of the cross and seeing their true reflection, gospel identity. But the Corinthians weren't even looking at the right mirror. They were looking into the mirror of worldly standards and the reflection they were seeing was a skewed reality. It's like going to the carnival and those crazy carnival mirrors that are all, you know, bent and warped. And so you stand in front of like a real mirror and it's just, you know, tall, skinny, then you stand in the next one, it looks like you're two foot tall and about three miles wide, right? Then you look in the next one, it's like you've got a fat head, like a skinny torso and like legs that are just gigantic. And then one, you know, it's just these crazy mirrors because they're skewed, they're warped, they don't don't quite show what reality really is. One, One mirror reflects reality, a good mirror, that carnival mirror distorts reality. The gospel mirror reflects reality. Believer, for you who have been called and have fellowship with Jesus Christ, you have a gospel identity. The worldly standard mirror distorts reality. You look into the mirror of worldly standards and the skewed reality that comes back is, hey man, you're actually pretty smart. You're pretty wise. You're pretty powerful. You're a person of noble rank, of high rank. That's why God chose you. But that's a false reality. It's a skewed reality. And Paul checks all of their faulty reasoning and grounds them by having them consider their call to salvation. That's what he's calling for there in verse 26. The things which elevate man in the world, wisdom, power, and rank, are not the things which lead to God and salvation. God is sovereign in how he distributes his grace, and no amount of human wisdom based upon worldly standards could ever butter up God enough or put him into the corner where he owes you salvation because you're just that awesome. It's not the way it works. Paul's point in getting them to consider their calling is that in calling out a people for his name, God showed no regard for their present values, worldly wisdom or merit. Actually, in calling them, he chose them who are a living contradiction to those values. 
So having stated the matter of their wrong thinking in verse 26, Paul turns their attention to what right thinking looks like in verses 27, 28, and 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So for this purpose, and here's the purpose statement of why God does things this way, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And here in verses 27 through 29, over a a three-verse stretch, Paul is going to hammer home this reality. God is the initiator of salvation, all for the glory of his name. Their salvation isn't rooted in how great they are. Rather, their salvation is rooted in the good and loving pleasure of a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, they thought they were wise according to worldly standards, but they were looking to the wrong source for their identity, and it betrayed them. The reality was that according to worldly standards, they were the exact opposite of who they thought they were. They were seen as foolish in the world, weak in the world, low and despised in the world, even considered as the things that are not. Yet, this reality becomes the very grounds for God's goodness to shine. Paul states that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chooses according to his wisdom, and it is always done in a way to magnify the greatness of who he is. God's choosing shames human wisdom and consequently magnifies his ways as wise, his ways as powerful, and his ways as magnificent. If it were true that the Corinthian idea of human wisdom was the basis for God choosing them, then they would ultimately have grounds for boasting in themselves before the Lord. If they could show up before God and go, God, we are the epitome of wisdom. After all, we are living in Corinth, Greece. And God goes, ooh, yes, forgot about Corinth. You guys are actually pretty powerful and pretty high ranked too. Team Jesus won't be Team Jesus without you guys on the team. I really need you guys because you're wise, powerful, and of high rank. Of course I owe you salvation. Please come aboard. Then they could ultimately stand before God and go, Hey, world, look how great we are. God chose us to be on his team because of how wise, powerful, and of high rank we are. But this is far from the truth. God choosing us, God choosing the Corinthians, God choosing any believer, bringing them into the fold of his flock, bringing lost sons and daughters, pulling them into the kingdom of the beloved son. It wasn't because of us. It wasn't because of you. It wasn't because I'm wise. It wasn't because you're powerful. It wasn't because you're black. It wasn't because you're white. It wasn't because you're rich. It wasn't because you're poor. It wasn't because you're from Illinois and someone else is from Texas. It wasn't because you're from Africa and I'm from Europe or whatever it is. It's not because of that. God choosing us wasn't because of us. It was actually despite us and all so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is jealous for his name and he will not share his glory with another. 
God has worked this way, chosen men according to his grace and not according to their merits to show that no man may boast in God's presence, that he has gained his salvation by his own effort. God chooses so that we will stand back and go, yes, yes, I'm here. Not because I was wise. Not because I was great. Not because I'm good. Not because I've helped enough people or went to church enough or gave enough money. But I am here solely because of love. Love from a loving God. Love from a fountain of grace, a fountain of mercy that's flowed down from him and out of his great love, out of his great steadfast love, out of his great mercy, out of his great grace, he has showered me with this love and drawn me into the kingdom. Like what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's effectual call applied to our hearts goes to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. See, you and I are trophies of his grace. You and I are trophies of his grace on display so that in the coming ages, God can hold us up as prime examples of just how good he is and in the end receive the boasting that he is so worthy to obtain. So, um, so this is sort of some sanctified imagination, but this is what I see going on. So one day, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we're going to be worshiping Jesus for an eter- infinite number of eternities, and we're going to constantly be standing around the throne of grace, worshiping Jesus, and I'm going to look over and go... You're here? And this guy's going to turn around and go, You're here? This buffoon is standing before Christ, worshiping Christ. I know the things that he did. I know the things that he thought. But Christ took those wicked, sinful things on himself. And now when he stands, when I stand before Christ, God doesn't see me in my wicked sinfulness. God sees me as a recipient of grace washed clean, purified by the word Jesus Christ himself so that when we're standing around heaven, everyone's been going, how did this guy make it in? And the answer is, because of Jesus. And it's supposed to take us to our knees and go, yes! Glory be to God that I get to stand here before Christ, not because I did something, but because Jesus Christ did everything. That's the point of what Paul is driving at. See, the Corinthians were drifting from this. And you can see how wicked that becomes when you drift from the consideration of your calling. You begin to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. With the Corinthians wrong thinking stated in verse 26 and laying out what right thinking looks like in verses 27 through 29, he wraps up this first illustration and he turns them with his writing to the proper object of their boasting, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, because of God, because of God doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Instead of boasting in themselves, redeemed men must realize that salvation is all of God's grace 
It is because of God's effective plan that they are in saving union with Christ Jesus. And being in Christ means that everything that Christ has is transferred to me. That's one of the beauties. That's one of the the things that we receive. That's one of the benefits we get from God going, okay, this guy's a buffoon. He loves sin more than he loves God. I'm grabbing, effectually grabbing a hold of him. I see my sin. He regenerates my heart. I fall on my knees. I repent. I receive. I believe. I cast my faith on Christ as my only hope of salvation. And by God doing all this work in my life, changing my heart, causing me to see my need for a Savior, me placing my faith and my only hope of salvation in Christ, what happens there is something very, very mystical. Not like cultish mystical, but very awesome Holy Spirit, something beyond us, something very mysterious, to where in that transaction, God takes us and puts us in Christ Jesus. So Christ, who is the epitome of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, all these things that are in him, now go transferred from his account, go over, and are now in my account. Being in Christ means that everything that Christ has is transferred to me. So in the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ has become to me righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, simply because God has put me in Christ Jesus Because of God's gracious provision of salvation in this way, all praise must go to the Lord. This is the glory of being in Christ. And this was the exact same, exact thing that Paul was trying to call the Corinthians to. See, brothers, your hearts are drifting over here. Be be careful because you're you're traveling the road of self-exaltation, thinking that your love for wisdom, thinking has become the center of who you are, and because that is true, you are now thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But let me call you back and to consider your calling, brothers. Consider that it is God who put you in Christ Jesus, that you have all of these riches because God has put you in Christ Jesus. This is the place where you boast in the glory of God. The Corinthians' gospel identity was not rooted in human wisdom. But as we turn our attention to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, Paul is going to close out that illustration. So that's sort of illustration 1. Hey, remember all that stuff I said to you guys just a little while ago that Jesus Christ and him crucified? That has to be the center of the gospel. Illustration 1, that's, that's the way it worked with you guys in your salvation. Illustration point number 2, consider my preaching. My preaching exemplifies this truth that Jesus Christ and him crucified has to be the center of the gospel. So, Now that this first illustration has been stated, Paul returns to the manner of his own preaching that he first introduced back in verses 17 and verses 23 of chapter 1. Paul argues that since salvation is attained not through human wisdom or power, but only through the cross, he came to Corinth in dependence on the Holy Spirit as he preached the message of a crucified Messiah. Paul resumes his line of thought that he first mentioned back in verse 17, considering once again the form of his preaching. The Corinthians were to consider their calling and see that it was all of God, and their calling was to lead to boasting in God. And the same was to happen when Paul turns the spotlight on his preaching. He reiterates that his preaching was not with lofty speech or wisdom, but it was marked by the message of the cross. 
chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except this one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was decided in the content of his preaching. Paul's preaching is very specific. It was to preach the person, Jesus Christ, and his work, him crucified. To preach a robust gospel of the cross is to preach both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To merely preach Christ as a good teacher, a great example, or a perfect man is to miss the mark. Because what you're doing is merely presenting Christ the person. But when you present Christ the person, what we also have to do is present Christ the work so that we can see, yes, this is the God-man who is also crucified for us so that through his person and through his work, he's the one who transfers us into the kingdom of the beloved son. He reiterates that his preaching was not with lofty speech. If he were to come preaching merely the person of Christ, it would be a half gospel. Gospel preaching is twofold. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now once Paul lays out the content of his preaching, Christ and him crucified, the person and the work, he turns to the form of his preaching and it runs it through the Corinthians' beloved grid of power and wisdom. So notice a lot of language here. If you look back last week in 17 through 25 and then look at our text today, this idea of power, wisdom, power, wisdom, power, it's popping up all over the place. I think Paul's doing this because the Corinthians were in love with human power and human wisdom. And it was tainting everything. Their gospel, how they viewed themselves, even beginning to even maybe taint how Paul preached because... What can be implied from the way Paul is saying, hey, I didn't come preaching to you in this way, was this, that they were looking on his preaching, recognizing that he didn't come to them preaching in power. He did not come to them preaching in human wisdom. And they were beginning to look down on his gospel going, who is this Paul guy anyways? I mean, his preaching isn't even marked by power and wisdom. But Paul as a preacher, he came in the opposite of power. We see that in verse 3. Paul, as himself, a preacher, came in the opposite of power. He was with them, what? In weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. He didn't show up sort of with like a a Rambo red bandana around his head, M16 slung over the back, kicking in the door of the Corinthian church, kapah, power, you know, that didn't happen. He didn't show up like that. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. How did he show up? These are his words. He said, when I came to you in Corinth, I was weak. I was scared, and I was shaking. That's the form of me as a preacher when I showed up to you. I mean, can anyone, can anyone just say, man, I've been there. The Holy Spirit so lands on you, and you're like, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I need to talk to this guy. But I think I would rather gouge out my eye right now than have to talk to this guy. Because I'm shaking, I'm in fear, and I'm not feeling, not feeling too powerful right now. You've got a friend in the brother Paul. Paul's preaching was the opposite of wisdom. That's what he says in verse 4. His speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Paul did not rely on his skill in argument or persuasion, 
nor did he rely upon any of the resources of human wisdom, but he relied fully and completely upon the power of the Spirit to bear truth to what he was saying. The Holy Spirit was the one who demonstrated the gospel to be true. Not his wisdom, not his ability to launch an effective argument, not his ability to wield apologetic arguments, but he showed up, Fear, trembling, scared. Hey, you guys need Jesus. You're separated from God. Christ crucified is your only hope of salvation. And in the simple preaching of that message, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers, applies to the sinful heart. And the stony heart of the unbeliever becomes flesh and made soft. And that is how we see a city changed. That's how we see your neighbors changed. Your grandpa, who's 80, and would rather punch you in the face than hear you talk about Jesus, a stony heart, if there ever was a stony heart, what is the hope of him repenting and believing? It's not you launching some effective argument. It's you bending your knees and saying, God, you have to empower these words. What I'm about to say is just the sheer epitome of stupidity to this guy. But you need to inhabit these words. And Paul says that's what happened to the Corinthians. He shows up, Christ crucified, spirit empowers, boom, a church is born. People transferred out of the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. He came to them preaching what he did and the way he did so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's verse 5. Listen, Paul's plain speaking of Christ and him crucified so demonstrated the power of the Spirit that when it was applied to their hearts, the Corinthians could do no other than to rest their faith in the power of God. Christ himself was to receive the full weight of their boasting, for when they compared the two side by side, Paul's preaching... Human wisdom, they could see no connection whatsoever between the two. Paul's preaching was so obviously not marked by human wisdom that there could only be one explanation for their salvation. The power of the living God had been applied to their heart and this through the conduit of preaching. The foolish power of the gospel of the cross saves sinners. And this alone is our ground of boasting. Paul's preaching was not rooted in human wisdom. So how do we respond to this? The gospel of God's cross is the good news. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have been made right with God. We cannot travel the path of human wisdom as a means to be made right with God. The center of the gospel, the center of our identity, and the center of what we preach to unbelievers has to be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For Christ is the power and wisdom of God that leads to salvation. The person of Jesus and the work of Jesus have to be the absolute nucleus of all that we believe, all that we are, and all that we do. In this we stand. 
For the power of the Spirit is demonstrated when the simple message of the cross is preached. But as the Corinthians proved, it is possible to drift from this center. And so from the illustrations that Paul used in our text today, I can see at least, at least two big ways that we can respond to what we've seen. The first comes from verses 26 through 31, where we looked at Paul calling them back to this idea that their gospel identity, the identity of who they were, wasn't rooted in worldly wisdom. So one of the first ways that we can respond is by this. When we drift from center in regard to our gospel identity, this is one of the first things that we need to, to look at. The first way to respond is when we drift from center in regard to our gospel identity. For the Corinthians, their love for human wisdom didn't just stop with their view of the gospel. It bled over to how they began to view themselves. They lost sight of the person and work of Christ, and the moment they did this, they lost sight of who they truly were. They were sinners in need of a Savior. God called them into fellowship with the Son. They had a new gospel identity, and this new identity was to bleed its way into all areas of their life. But the moment that they lost sight of the center, they began to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. It was no longer humble joy presenting a sacrifice of praise to a holy God who saved them. But it was a braggadocious spirit that elevated themselves in their own eyes and put God in their debt. So in regard to identity, the question that then becomes for you and I are, where in your life are you drifting and relying on a false center? Where in your life has Jesus Christ been removed and something else put in? Where in your life are you no longer looking into the mirror of the gospel and the reflection coming back going, ah, oh, yes, I am a child of the king, and because this is true, that will work itself out in the way I father, the way I husband, the way I parent, the way I work, the way I eat, the way I drink, the way I mow, the way I talk to my neighbor, the way I paint the garage door. When Christ is the center of who you are, when your gospel identity is rooted in him, that is the nucleus, that is the center, that is the gravity of who you are, and everything else is to work itself out from there. The problem comes is when you reach out and you grab one of these peripheral things, rip Jesus off the throne of your heart, grab one of these things, plant that on the heart, then that's when drift comes. And this is a question you can answer. Where in your life are you drifting and relying on a false center? What thing is at the center of your life other than Jesus that is leading you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think? So some of these are silly, but it'll make the point. So perhaps it's homeschooling versus public schooling. We we homeschool our kids. You public school? Maybe it's the other way around. I'm a public schooler. Those snobby homeschoolers. Maybe it's small family versus large family. Maybe God has called you to have a large family. But when your desire for a large family comes and becomes the the ruling thing on on the throne of your heart, and then you start to look down upon those other people that only have only one or two kids. I remember how easy it was back then. 
Or maybe it's, I've got a small family, those irresponsible people over there with that large family. Right? Or maybe it's high education or low education. Or maybe it's, I'm a natural foods, organic, crunchy food co-op person. Or maybe it's like, well, I really like a lot of preservatives, prepackaged food, and big chains, food chains. Right? See, there's nothing inherently wrong with all of these things. Right? Those are good desires. So if you want to eat a natural food and live a natural food lifestyle, you're free in Christ to do that. If you want to eat food chock full of high preservatives, good grief, do that. The problem becomes when you grab your homeschool attitude, your public school attitude, big family, small family attitude, organic lifestyle versus the non-organic lifestyle, when that attitude goes, this is who I'm identified as, I'm the organic food guy, and that becomes the center of who you are, and then you start looking down your nose upon other people, then we have drift taking place. Now, like I said, these things are silly, But the point is the deceitfulness of sin is always subtle. I mean, I've said this before. I'm going to say this continually. Nobody walks through the door and goes, you know what? I'm kicking Jesus off the throne of my heart here in about, oh, 15 minutes. And I'm going to plant some other false identity that's going to lead me astray from the gospel at 15 minutes and one second. Nobody does that. It's the slow drift. It's the deceitfulness of sin. It's the the deceptiveness of the one who has hell in mind for your soul so that he comes in, whispers things to you, and the next thing you know, a good desire becomes an over-desire, and that over-desire rules your heart, and that's what your identity is rooted in, and then the next thing you know, you wake up a year, two years, three years down the road, and you're just adrift, and the gospel no longer has any impact on your life. The slow drift of the heart from my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and him crucified to anything else is sneaky, brothers, sneaky sisters. So where might there need to be a realignment to center? Second, coming out of verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. A way that we can think and respond to this comes as we think about what it looks like to drift from center in regard to the message we preach to unbelievers. The preaching of a crucified Messiah is admittedly a humble message, right? I mean, can we, can we agree with this? I mean, there, there's not anything, you know, overly like that is astoundingly intellectual. What we come up to people and say is, you are at enmity with God. You're separated from God. Nothing you do can ever make you right with God, but there is one. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's already hammered this out, splits the world in two. There's people who go, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and the gospel of the cross is folly to them. And there's people who see their need to be made right with God, see that they can do nothing about it. They see the gospel of the cross and go, that is the power and wisdom of God. It's admittedly a humble message. And if we aren't careful, we may find ourselves drifting toward the idea of human wisdom as a necessary supplement to boost the power of the cross. So another a great, a great question to ask is this. Are you trying to boost the power of the cross by appealing to wisdom over the simple message of a crucified Messiah? Right, this can take 
take many forms. It could be you using certain phrases to sort of paint the message of the Jesus so that it'll be a little bit more palatable to that person. Maybe it's avoiding certain phrases because the minute that you mention crucifixion, people are going to go, well, that's stupid. Or maybe it's speaking about Jesus but never getting to the point of him crucified. Right? There's a lot of people who will go, yeah, I'm spiritual. They'll hook Jesus onto their religious belt with everyone else. But the moment that you link Christ and him crucified as your only means of salvation, then that's unpalatable. Or maybe it is the opposite side of the spectrum. A sense of shame in proclaiming the gospel of the cross because of how simple and scandalous it is. So you say nothing. You may, you may find yourself among some very intellectual, highly educated people, but to push through all the intellect and cut to the quick with a simple presentation of Jesus Christ and him, him crucified is tough. But that is where the power of the Spirit lays. It is worthy to note, I, I just want to put this in here as a, a, little, a little pause, a little, a little parenthesis. It is worthy to note that there is room for apologetics, right, in Christianity. There, there's room to have intellect, to think. The world on the outside looks in and goes, these are a group of people who have checked their brain at the door. So don't hear me saying, yeah, I agree with what they're saying. When we're talking about human wisdom can't be mixed in with the gospel, what we're talking about is the human wisdom as a means, intellect as a means, apologetics, well-placed arguments to help people think as a means of leading to salvation. The only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ and him is crucified. So I want to tell you, it is worthy to note that there is room for apologetics, intellect, and wisdom within Christianity, but all of these things don't have the power to save. I love this quote here. This guy said, It might have been easy for Paul to argue the Corinthians into a conviction of the truth of the gospel. He might have exhibited the folly of idolatry and the absurdity of pagan rites and ceremonies and convinced them of the historical truth of Christianity. The conviction produced would be rational and important, but it would not be saving faith. Merely using intellect and conversation but never getting to the person and the work of Jesus Christ leaves people with Jesus Christ and him apologized but not with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Both are good, but one is powerless. Apologetics will never lead someone to the cross if you don't ever present them with the need of a crucified Messiah. I mean, this is challenging to me. Right? This, this cuts to my heart pretty quick. Because if I believe this to be true, that someone will be transferred from the domain of darkness, have a heart of flesh, enraptured by sin, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. If I believe these things are only true and can only happen by me presenting Christ and Him crucified, then the question I have to ask when I look into the mirror of this truth, the reflection that comes back to me is, brother, you're not really doing that very well. If I believe this, are my actions backing up what I say I believe? 
Right, because at community group this past week, we were talking about some of this to where we were thinking through these people that we know that are just outright marked in that category of the cross is folly and they are people who are perishing. And we started talking around this idea of what hope do we have? Because when we started thinking about it, it was sort of hope crushing. Like, what hope do I have that this person that I love dearly, my neighbor, my city, my state, my nation, the world will come? To know Jesus Christ in a salvific way. What is my hope? The hope is this. The power of the Spirit demonstrated through you preaching the cross. So what you do is you bend your knees and go, God, I need you to inhabit the preaching of the gospel. Can Convince me that I need to rely upon you and not something else. Because I don't pray like that. As often as I should. And this message has convicted the messenger. So my challenge to you as you leave this place and as you discuss in community group this week is this. If this is true, what are we doing? Are we praying? Are we coming with a humble attitude going, God, you've placed me here. You set me in this season. You've called me to be a light of the gospel to this family, neighborhood, friends, co-workers, students, barista, whatever it is, wherever you're at, and go, God, these are the people in my sphere of influence. Bend your knee and go, God, help me. Fill me with the Spirit. Spirit, inhabit my praise. Spirit, break their stony heart. Spirit, use these humble words. Spirit, use this message. Brothers and sisters, that's the hope of us, Delta Church, other churches in this city who are gospel-believing churches. That is our hope as a people. Big C Church seeing Springfield turned on its head, turned upside down. Let's pray. God, you are good. May these words come and draw our hearts to walk out of here with this one truth. My boast is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And because this is true, we ask that you, God, would inhabit the proclamation of this truth and demonstrate the power of the Spirit. God, help us, and as we turn our hearts and turn our minds to magnify you through the singing of song, may this ring true. In Christ's name I pray, amen.